Welcome back to The Daily Devotion. My name is Kevin. I'm the pastor of Christ Church Conway. The Daily Devotion is a time for us to be strengthened in our faith through the study of Scripture and theology. This morning, we're not looking at the book of Galatians. I'm sharing with you the sermon that was preached last night at our Good Friday service as we reflect on the death and resurrection of Christ this Easter weekend. Most gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word we read the story of what Christ has done that we might have life. That he gave his life in place of ours. We ask now that as we come to your word to reflect on the death of Christ and what was accomplished and what it means, that you would strengthen us by your spirit. That you would add your blessing to this reading of your word that by it we might be strengthened in our faith, that our eyes all together might be fixed on Jesus Christ, our Savior, and on Him alone. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we come to this passage and read once again the story of the crucifixion of Christ, it's a story that undoubtedly to everyone here is very, very familiar. It's what we look to to remember that our sins have been paid for. But as we come to this story once again and read it, there's three things that I want us to think about as we think about what the death of Christ was and and what it means and what it accomplished for us. The first thing, we're going to see that it was a fulfilling death. Second, we're going to see that it was a compelling death. And finally, we're going to see that it was an effective death. So first of all, the death of Christ was a fulfilling death. What do I mean by this? Well, several times in this passage, you heard me say something like, this was to fulfill the Scriptures. In fact, four different Old Testament passages are either directly quoted or or more indirectly referenced as being fulfilled by what Christ did. First, in verse 24, We read, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. We read this earlier in response and Psalm 22, verse 18. There's so much in that psalm that looks forward to and predicts the reality of what it is that Christ would do. But here we have this this tiny detail that his tunic, that that his cloak that he wore that that was valuable because it it was seamless, it was woven in one piece from top to bottom, that they saw that and, and wanted it and didn't want it to be destroyed. And so... They said, let's cast lots, and whoever wins gets to keep it. It's an amazingly small detail. Hardly something that that some people would have us to believe about prophecy is just kind of a general statement that could be made that's just bound to come true. No, this is much more specific than that. And that's part of what John is wanting us to see as we read this story. And he includes the the specific references that he includes out of the the many, many more that he could have included. 
that Christ's death fulfilled even the smallest points of the Old Testament. That what He did in His life and death, and and as we will see on Sunday in His resurrection, it fulfilled Scriptures down to every jot and tittle. Like He told us in the Sermon on the Mount, nothing would pass away. But He would fulfill it all. Here, even this tiny detail we see is fulfilled. Then down just a little bit further in verse 28. And here we find a a reference to Psalm 69. It's not a, a direct quote, but we read after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. If we go back to Psalm 69, verse 21, we read these words. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Again, we see these small, these seemingly minor details that that are foretelling what it is that Christ would endure on our behalf. We see Him fulfilling all of these typological statements of the Old Testament, bearing witness to the fact that He was, in fact, though He was suffering and dying on the cross, He was, in fact, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. We only know Him as the Messiah who lived and suffered, who died for us and rose again in victory. But in his day, the idea of a Messiah giving up his life, that just wasn't what they were looking for at all. They wanted one who would come and conquer and give freedom and and give liberty from the Romans who, who had inhabited their land. But what they got was a Messiah who did in fact conquer, who did in fact do all that was needed to be done to give freedom and to give liberty to His people, but He did it by laying His own life down and by suffering. In verse 36, we read, These things took place to fulfill, uh, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Here, John is reminding us of, of what was a normal process in the, in the process of crucifixion, or a normal step in the process of crucifixion. Of, if it was taking a little bit too long for someone to die by asphyxiation, they would simply break their legs so that it was excruciatingly painful, as if it wasn't already, to push themselves up to breathe. Because that was kind of what you had to do, apparently, is you had to kind of push up with your legs to get a little bit of a breath. And so they would break their legs so they couldn't do that. But when they came to Christ, they found, in fact, that he was already dead. And so his legs weren't broken. And John reminds us even this was to fulfill the Scriptures. See, what we see here in this point, and in, in this point of the fulfilling death of Christ, is that is the sovereignty over his death that God had. Right down to how much he would suffer, right down to exactly what he would endure on the cross. God was in control. Before it ever happened, it was foretold that his bones would not be broken. 
nothing here that is happening is accidental. At no point in the crucifixion is God out of control. At no point is the situation out of his control. Here's what this means for us. This was the Father's plan to redeem us, his people. To give his Son to suffering, sovereignly, knowingly, willingly, to give his Son. And he had planned out even the details of his suffering. Why? Because he loved us and wanted us redeemed to be a people for himself. Finally, on the fulfilling death of Christ, we read in verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Another part of the the process that commonly happened with crucifixions is they would would pierce their side and and see what would come out. And the the, the blood and the water had separated. I don't understand all of the, the medical science behind it, but that showed surely that he was dead. And more importantly, that he was the one who was fulfilling what, again, God had planned for the Messiah to fulfill on behalf of his people. So when we say that Christ's death was a fulfilling death, what we see here is that Christ was the one who the Old Testament said he would be. He did what the Old Testament said he would do. He, He did what his father over all these thousands of years, said the Messiah would do. Second, in this passage, we see that Christ's death was a compelling death. In the bit of the story beginning in verse 31, where the soldiers come and are breaking the legs of the men crucified on either side of him, It says, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. John is conveying this story. Not to just wow us with the horrors of what Christ endured on our behalf. Certainly it does that as we think about the crown of thorns and the nails being driven and all of the pain and the suffering and the brutality of this scene. It is just an awful scene. It's an awful scene that we need to see that took place for us. But John is writing this. That we might believe. See, he intends this story that he is telling about the death of Christ to somehow be compelling to us, to somehow, as Scripture says the Word of God will, to strengthen our faith, to work faith in us by the telling of this story. Of course, we see just in the next chapter that this is why John wrote his entire gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what John is driving at here. That we might understand what it is that Christ has done for us and that we might, by hearing this story of the suffering of Christ for the sins of his people, not the sins of himself, but the sins of you and I and all his people throughout history, that by hearing this story, we might be taught by the Spirit to look to him in faith. And so he says, receive eternal life. See, this is the gospel, that Christ died in our place. That he suffered the punishment due for our sins. That he bore the wrath and curse of God that you and I justly deserved. That's the good news of the cross. That's why we refer to this day as Good Friday. Because what we remember and what we reflect on that took place all those 2,000 years ago is the payment for your sin and mine and for the sin of every Christian in all of history, past, present, and future. John is conveying this story to us that we might believe it and so have life. Because apart from what Christ did here, as we're told repeatedly throughout the Bible, we're dead in our sin. In Adam, all of us have died. And continuing in our sin, we've we've continued to show our death. And so we see here in this story, The one who was life. The one who John tells us the beginning of his gospel was there and and through whom all things were made. The one who was the very word of life died in our place. And John wants us to believe that what he did, the price he paid, was everything that was needed. That in him we have life. Because for us, he took on death. Finally, we see that this was an effective death. It was a fulfilling death. Christ was who the Old Testament said he would be. It was a compelling death. Christ was who he said he was. And it was an effective death. When they put that sponge with the sour wine on the hyssop branch up to his mouth and and he got some ability to speak again, he called out these words that we'll sing in just a minute. It is finished. Three of the most glorious words, perhaps the most wonderful sentence that's ever been spoken. 
And, and John doesn't record this detail, but in Matthew 27 and in, in Mark 15, we read that when he spoke these words, it is finished. The, the veil in the temple that separated the most holy place from the holy place, that, 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 that veil was torn in two. Or to say it in the best way I've heard, ever heard it said, as Dr. Thomas used to say, it was rent asunder. That's what happened. This veil that separated the people of God from the presence of God that had hung there for thousands of years as a reminder that they couldn't come into God's holy presence. This veil through which only the high priest could go and him only once a year and only with blood covering him and to be spattered about to atone for the sins of his people. This veil that reminded them that blood had to be shed, that a sacrifice had to be made if they were to be in good standing with God. This veil, we are told, when Christ called out, it is finished, was torn. No longer was there a dividing wall between the presence of God and his people. Truly, Christ had made a way for you and I. Not because of our own righteousness, but because of his. And because in it, he paid the price for us. He had made a way for us to come to the very presence of the holy God of all creation. No more blood would need to be shed. No more sacrifices would need to be made. Never again would the high priest need to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and spatter blood all about. The author of Hebrews reminds us that all of these animal sacrifices that had to be done year after year after year were a reminder of sin. But when Christ, the perfect sacrifice, died, nothing else was needed. Do you hear that? No further work is needed to pay for your sins. No further act of penance is needed to satisfy God with you. No more blood needs to be shed to cancel the record of debt with its legal demands that stood justly against you. Nothing else needs to be accomplished for God to be satisfied with you, his people. Nothing else is outstanding for you to be justified. It is finished. And so on this day that so often is a somber day for the church, we can rejoice. Because it's a day that we celebrate that all that we justly deserved has been accomplished. That the wrath of God in all of its terrifying horror has been satisfied. That our sins 
with all their record of guilt, have been expiated. They've been washed away. We've been cleansed. And in Christ, we stand justified, counted righteous. Our sins pardoned, accepted as righteous in the sight of Almighty God only because of the righteousness of Christ credited to our account and received by faith alone. And so as we reflect on the death of our Savior, we rejoice because it means that nothing is outstanding between us and God. My brothers and sisters in Christ, hear me say to you, on this Good Friday, in the name of Christ our Savior, your sins are forgiven. And lift up your head and rejoice because Easter is coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that this story gives us. And we pray that your spirit would make this word effective in us, that it truly might be a compelling death, that we might see it, that we might hear it, that we might believe it, that we might be strengthened in our faith and strengthened in our justification. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Let's stand and now lift our voices together.